evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation, live from Jersey City in that great state that we call New Jersey. It's great to be here. Thanks for joining, whether you're present, past, future, or in the fourth dimension somewhere. It's great to have you with me. And uh, I want to follow up on what I was going on about the the end of last week's show was the end of the October Hellraiser fundraiser that FMU has every October. And I told you that uh, with with a little bit of concern in my voice that um, that Tectonic was was a, a good deal away from its goal. And I'm happy to say that we came very, very, very close to making the goal. Thanks to everybody who um, who pledged uh, last week, but also throughout the whole month, all the swag for lifers, all of your support, your nice notes, your encouraging emails, all of that. I I, I just want to express my gratitude. Because, um, you know, this this show is funded by you. The station is funded by you. And as I often will tell listeners when I write back to their nice emails, uh, it's, it's also fueled by your encouragement. <laughs> I do appreciate hearing uh, from, from some of you every week or two that, that you liked a certain show or a certain part of a show or found something inspiring or were inspired to to uh, learn more read more about a, a certain subject because of one of the shows i'm just i'm i'm here for you i'm here for you and so i'm glad that uh i'm glad that october turned out well for the whole station and and uh and and tectonic got got a little um a, a, enough enough pledges to come very close to our goal as well so thanks to all of you this week we're talking about tech villains and the, the reason I wanted to um, catch up on tech villains is because there have been a number of news stories in the past week or two that have featured these, uh, the, these tech bro uh, m- moguls who I have covered um, over the years, some more than others. But um, the, the news stories that I have come across have been featuring these individuals. And I thought it'd be really interesting to do an update, kind of where are they now or what just happened to them, uh, focused on these individuals, which is um, a a little bit of a contrast of the systemic criticism that I I present you with um, most weeks on the show. This one is going to be focus more on the the actions or the decisions of individuals. So I have four that I'm going to talk to you about. Uh, we're going to talk about Sam Bankman-Fried. Some of you probably already know the contours of, of that update, but it's worth talking about a little bit. Adam Newman, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, and Mark Andreessen. And if there are any of these names that you don't recognize or you're not quite sure who they are, don't worry, I'm going to get into the details. But those are the four we're going to be covering and before I do, I want to just say something about the, uh, the responsibility of individuals in a corrupt system. Because sometimes when you look at a systemic um, criticism or, or you just do a systemic analysis of something like our tech-infiltrated economy, you can say, well, 
the the actions of any individual, whether they're uh, whether they're a drone or they're a CEO or some somewhere in the middle, they don't really the individual doesn't really matter because it's really these systemic forces, these tremendous pressures that companies and industries are under to uh, produce growth or profits or escape escape um, regulatory oversight or whatever their motivations are of course it, it, i mean it, there's a there's this tendency in some quarters to look at this as almost a physical phenomenon you know like like a low pressure system will cause a storm to come in it just happens you know th- th- this is how a system works and on tonight's show i just i want to argue that th- there there is a place for an individual to <laughs> To stand up and say, this is wrong, I'm not going to do it, or conversely, this is the right thing to do, and I am going to do it. E- even at a, at, at, a, at a personal cost, I'm going to do the right thing, and I am going to avoid doing the wrong thing. And so increasingly, not increasingly, I mean very consistently, uh, we see just the opposite from the senior leadership, the founders, CEOs, the top VCs. Um, in Silicon Valley, and I want to I want to go over these four individuals to to give you some examples, so you can see what their actions are, and some of the rationalization that they use for their uh, for their unethical activity. But before we dive into the first one, I'm going to get to is Sam Bankman-Fried. But before I get into SBF, as he's called, I want to just I want to remind you that even in a system, there are individuals acting. So let me give you an example of something that could be looked at as a systemic problem. This is, um, you may have seen this, this is a story that came out in the New York Times just a few days ago on November 2nd. The headline, and it was covered by a number of um, news outlets, but if you, if you go to the playlist at WFMU.org, you'll see a link to um, one of the stories. This is the, the New York Times story. The headline is, Uber and Lyft agree to a $328 million payout for New York drivers. Uber and Lyft, of course, are the Silicon Valley-based rideshare companies where you use a smartphone app um, that surveils you in different ways, and it allows you to call a car that is uh, driven by a generally an exploited gig worker. And, um, and, I, and I'm not exaggerating this. To let me tell you what the story said about Uber and Lyft agreeing to this $328 million payout just in New York State. Quote, this is the Times, quote, Uber will pay $290 million and Lyft will provide $38 million into two funds that will pay out claims that roughly 100,000 current and former drivers in New York State are eligible to file. These are the drive, Uber and Lyft drivers talking about the ride-hailing companies did not admit fault in the settlement. Of course, of course they didn't, <laughs> because uh, they're just paying. You know, Uber's paying two hundred ninety million dollars because I don't know. Just a random thought came over them one day that maybe we should pay uh, over a quarter billion dollars to New York State, not because we did anything wrong, but just because I don't know we we lost a bet or something. We're just doing it randomly because we didn't do anything wrong. These companies they never admit any wrongdoing, but then they pay these giant fines. Well, thank goodness, um, uh, Attorney General Letitia James 
said it correctly, and a lot of credit to her and her team for prosecuting this. She said, for years, Uber and Lyft systematically cheated their drivers out of hundreds of millions of dollars in pay and benefits while they worked long hours in challenging conditions. Okay, and so there's another link there in the playlist to a summary of this on Boing Boing, uh, which, which talks about what the scam was, that Uber, Uber and Lyft were both running the same scam. I mean, this is the problem when you have a duopoly, two companies. Like, you can choose any ride-sharing app you want, as long as it's Uber or Lyft. And, and I know there are some alternative uh, apps out there, so there's some small co-ops here and there, but there's not, a, there's not any um, ethical challenger or competitor to take on these, these two unethical duopolists. So Boing Boing wrote about the, the scam that, had, um, that Uber and Lyft are definitely didn't do any wrongdoing, but are paying a fine for. Quote, Uber deducted sales taxes and other fees from drivers' pay rather than adding it to customers' tabs. And they lied about it in their terms of service. Oh, this is Uber. Uber deducted sales taxes from di- drivers' pay rather than adding it to customers' tabs, and Uber lied about it in its terms of service. Lyft did likewise through the cunning device of applying an, quote, administrative charge equal to sales tax. So basically what you have is Uber and Lyft are are uh, taking some percentage off the top of what should be going to drivers and to sh- in Lyft's case, to shield it from any scrutiny. They just call it an administrative charge. They knew exactly what they were doing. I mean, it's, to- it's, it's, it, 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 it's totally wrong. It's theft. It, I mean, I don't know if it fits the legal definition of theft, but certainly the moral or ethical definition of taking money away from a worker that is due the worker uh, that is what Uber and Lyft were engaged in. And so thank goodness they've been caught and, uh, and have been assessed these, these rather large fines, at least in New York State. All we need is now for the other 49 states to do similarly, and maybe Uber and Lyft will, will get a little bit of a notion of the price they pay for corrupt action. But m- my larger point for as we talk about these, these um, individuals tonight, these individual tech bros, these tech villains, is that when you think about Uber and Lyft, just consider that every decision that is is that far-reaching. That we, listen, we're, we're going to tr- we're going to cheat our drivers. Okay, we're going to call sales tax an administrative charge, and we are just we're going to uh, take it off the top for years, and we're going to make millions. That's that doesn't happen by accident. It's not just a random outcome of a system, you know, like a gust of wind or something. That was somebody or some somebodies inside Uber and Lyft who cooked up this plan, who announced it to their seniors or their lowers somewhere in the organization. They had to generate organizational momentum, and then they had to plan to roll it out, and then they had to actually execute. There were many steps that individuals within Uber and Lyft had to go through to carry out a corrupt, unethical act of theft that exploited their workers. There were many people inside Uber and Lyft who knew exactly what they were doing, and they did it anyway. And for shame, you know, (laughs) 
it, amazing that there are people who will, will use their time on this earth to steal from others. Um, and, I, and I understand some people may be rather low in the hierarchy, and this is, it's either do, you know, write this code or you get fired and you lose your health benefits and maybe they have a sick kid or sick relative or something. You know, I can, I can kind of understand the pressures some people in those situations are in. But as you go higher up in the hierarchy where people have more power and more privilege, they have more options. If, if they see unethical goings on around them, they have other options. Their career is not going to conk out if they say no and, and they get thrown out of Uber for, for not, being, um, not being appropriately corrupt. You're, not, you're just not a good fit here, Dave. You're just not corrupt enough. You know, Dave can go and get a job somewhere else. I'm, I'm, whether Dave is a product manager or a systems engineer or security uh, VP or, you know, I don't know all the different roles that had to feed into this scam, but those guys and gals, they can get jobs elsewhere if they're high enough in Uber and Lyft, and they decided to carry out this corrupt action. It's just, it's amazing to me. And, and there's a culture of that in Silicon Valley. And I know the tech industry is not unique in this respect. I know there's corruption in plenty of other uh, big fill-in-the-blank industries. But this, this show is about tech. We do deep dives on tech. And so that's what I want to cover. And so I want to I go on to Sam Bankman-Fried and some of these others because I want to show you that the individual decision-making to... Uh, to be corrupt, to be deceptive, to tell lies, to intentionally harm people. That is woven throughout the culture of the highest levels of the tech industry. This is endemic to the tech industry. And you could say, well, Mark, not everybody, not all the top leaders in tech are corrupt. And I would say, you know, you're right. Uh, and yet, just the fact that you have to say that sentence speaks volumes. You know, not all of them are corrupt. <laughs> what an argument. Okay, so let's move on to our first tech villain that I want to cover this evening. Sam Bankman-Fried, of course, the founder of FTX, this crypto exchange that was uh, conducting fraud for years until it all came crashing down. And, uh, and Sam Bankman-Fried was, was taken to court and he was convicted. So let me just back up one second and I want to I give you a good um, summary of what happened, what Sam Bankman-Fried did, what he decided to do, and what he enlisted his, the rest of his team, his lieutenants, if we can call them that, his colleagues at FTX to do. This comes from uh, Matt Levine, who write, he writes for Bloomberg and he's got a daily newsletter called Money Stuff. And he's written a lot about Sam Bankman-Fried uh, over the last year plus. And just today, November 6, 2023, here's what he, this is an ex excerpt of, of what he wrote. He said, um, in, in terms of the court case where SBF was convicted, speaking about what the prosecutors had to, uh, had to get across to the, to the jurors, Levine writes, all that you actually need to tell a jury is, number one, Customers deposited billions of dollars at FTX. Okay. Number two, Sam Bankman-Fried spent a whole lot of it on baubles like Bahamas beachfront real estate, political donations, Tom Brady, etc. <laughs> Tom Brady. Number three, 
The customers asked for their money back, and it wasn't there. Levine continues, there, there is just no coming back from that. You know, Bankman Freed di- did not come back. Last Thursday, after four weeks of trial and less than five hours of deliberation, the jury came back with a verdict of obviously guilty. Come on. That's, that's how Levine writes it. And then we've got Molly White, who writes about the uh, crypto industry, if we can call it that, from November 2nd, writing uh, her own summary of the trial. SBF is guilty on all charges. She wrote, it took almost as long for the judge to read the charges to the jury as it did for the jury to find SBF guilty on all seven counts. And if you're interested, listeners, I could tell you the seven counts. Wire fraud on FTX customers, guilty. Conspiracy to commit wire fraud on FTX customers, guilty. Wire fraud on Alameda Research lenders, guilty. Conspiracy to commit wire fraud on Alameda Research lenders, guilty. Conspiracy to commit securities fraud, guilty. Conspiracy to commit commodities fraud, guilty. Conspiracy to commit money laundering, guilty. And apparently there were two different types of uh, money laundering that that tripped uh, that charge and the jury indicated that SBF had engaged in both types. So guilty on all of them. And it took them five hours, which for a four-week trial really is not not very long for a deliberation. Uh, And in the New York Times, uh, they also wrote their own summary of the case. SBF is found guilty of seven counts of fraud and conspiracy. And they write, you know, what, because you, you may be wondering, what was, what was Sam Bankman Freed's own defense? I mean, why didn't he just plead guilty? The guy is obviously guilty. Why didn't he just plead guilty, get a, get a plea bargain and a reduced sentence and just move on from there? No. As the New York Times writes, Mr. Bankman Freed tried to dismiss, his, dismiss FTX's collapse as the unfortunate result of a monumental accounting error rather than a deliberate fraud. But his trial prosecutors argued that he had repeatedly lied to customers, lenders, and investors using their funds to build himself up into a crypto titan. The point there is that SBF tried to say, it wasn't my fault. I I didn't do anything wrong, I promise. It was an accounting mistake. I I don't know, I, I lost my lunch, my dog ate my homework. You know, the, these guys, they will not take responsibility, even when, <laughs> I mean, if you know about the trial, you know, all of his coworkers are testifying against him, saying, he told me to do X, Y, and Z. I mean, they just laid out the scam from beginning to end. And SBF, I mean, he was, he was cooked, and still he could not take one shred of responsibility for his actions. Let's move on to... Uh, let's move on to Adam Newman, um, because here's here's somebody else who uh, took some actions that were highly ethically dubious. Um, I don't want to say outright fraud um, because that has not been proven or even tried in a court of law, but I want to say highly ethically dubious. I'll say that. And if you want more details on this, go back to my 2019 interview with Elliot Brown, who wrote a book, co-wrote a book called The Cult of We, which was about Adam Newman and WeWork, which was fascinating. And it was a fun interview as well. But the reason why we're talking about Adam Newman, founder of WeWork, is that uh, about a week ago, 
early in November, WeWork, the company that Adam Newman founded and, and later left, WeWork has now declared bankruptcy. And from Wall Street on Parade, which is a daily newsletter and blog, which I like a lot, uh, Wall Street on Parade wrote a piece called, We Suck. First came the hype, then came Adam Newman's self-dealing, then came the IPO scandal, now comes the bankruptcy. And here's what Wall Street on Parade wrote. Back in 2019, venture capitalists had valued this company at $47 billion, with a B, dollars, and were hoping to cash out in a hot IPO. Yesterday, the company closed with a market value of $59 million. And remember, friends, you know your math, right? A million is one thousandth of a billion. And so it went from 47 billion down to 59 million. Wall Street on Parade continues. As of this morning, Forbes put Newman's net worth at $2.2 billion. WeWork's shareholders, on the other hand, are sitting with an effective three cent stock that is likely to be wiped out and bankruptcy. So Newman got out and he is now worth $2.2 billion. And the latest news is that he was hobnobbing somewhere uh, at a, at a uh, top t uh, fintech conference, hobnobbing with, with other um, CEOs and bajillionaires. $2.2 billion. Has Newman expressed any regret for the highly ethically dubious actions that he took to leave WeWork in that state? No. No, he's got his $2.2 billion. And so there's your update on SBF and Adam Newman. Uh, one of them tanked a company and is facing uh, over 100 years, possibly. Sentencing comes in March for SBF. Over 100 years in prison, possibly. And for Adam Newman, he, uh, in, in, a, in a material way, I suppose you could say, he's got it made, $2.2 billion. Very different outcomes from a... I think not too dissimilar uh, set of ethics or lack of ethics. Let's move on to Mark Zuckerberg. This one is one where we can dig in a, a little bit more. Um, before we do, let me just remind you, if you are just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst, and uh, I'm talking about some of the top tech villains and giving an update on their appearances in recent news. We've covered... FTX's Sam Bankman-Fried, and WeWork's Adam Newman, and what happened to them. And if you want to join in the live listener chat, you can go to wfmu.org and click Playlists and Comments. And if you're listening in the future, you can find the November 6, 2023 episode on tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm, and clip, click that uh, playlist link. You can see what all the links are from tonight and also the uh, listener comments. So let's get back to Mark Zuckerberg, shall we? Here's a guy who's been on the show. Well, he's, he's never been on Tectonic, but I have certainly uh, made him a feature and occasionally a focus of Tectonic episodes for low these past six years. Because this guy, I'll give him this, um, he is consistent. I mean, he showed us who he was very early on, like so many of these guys. Uh, he, they, they show you who they are early on, and then they do not 
uh, stray from that. They don't stray from their lack of, of ethics or values. They don't stray from their one goal, which is growth at any cost. They, they, that is the only, that's the only speed they have. And that's certainly the case with Mark Zuckerberg. So a couple of years ago, there were these uh, revelations from Francis Haugen, who came out of uh, Facebook as a whistleblower, to say, hey, um, their Instagram is harming teenage girls. Instagram, of course, being part of Facebook, I suppose I should technically call it meta, but I, I am I, I'm just so irritated that, that Mark Zuckerberg uh, took over that word. That was a perfectly fine word, meta, uh, that, that we used until, until Facebook took it over. So I prefer to just call it uh, Instagram and Facebook. Anyway, Francis Haugen uh, gave these revelations, spoke to Congress, a Senate committee, saying, uh, as a whistleblower, basically, Instagram senior leadership knows that they are harming teenage girls. They have research inside the company that says this service harms teenage girls, and they, they continue to try to grow the service even with that at the heart of the business model, the harm of young users, because it keeps them engaged. That's why. And they get their friends to get engaged. They all get addicted together. And if all the friends are there together, it's very difficult for one to leave. Even if they're all being harmed, uh, many of them are succumbing to depression. They're being harassed. They're being sexually harassed by, by guys, by men. It's disgusting. And so, there's another whistleblower who's going to come out <laughs> because Frances Haugen, uh, I mean, she spoke the truth and here we still are. You know, Facebook is making more money than ever right now. Did you know that? Their, their profits are growing. All this talk about, oh, the advertisers are going to boycott and the senators are going to shake their fingers at Mark Zuckerberg and they're going to have him testify. And this. None, none of it did, did one whit. Of, of damage to Facebook's material prospects, not a whit. So Facebook is performing better than ever materially, not ethically. And there's another, uh, yet another uh, Facebook whistleblower who's coming out who's saying, hey, Facebook senior leadership knows that Facebook is harming uh, teenage users, especially teenage girls. So they're in the Wall Street Journal, uh, this just last weekend, November 2nd, there was an article, a really well-researched, well-written article by Jeff Horowitz, and I think this is adapted from a book that he's got coming out soon about, uh, about the whistleblowers within Facebook. And I, I don't know if I have to read yet. I've read, I've read and featured on this show five or six books about Facebook. I don't know if I need to do a seventh, uh, but maybe I do. We'll see. I'll think about it. Um, but this, this story that Jeff Horowitz wrote was well worth reading. If you have a journal, uh, I kind of think it's probably beyond the, behind the paywall. The, uh, the headline is, his job was to make Instagram safe for teens. His 14-year-old showed him what the app was really like. And so this, it's about this guy named Arturo Behar, if that's how you say Bejar, Behar, um, I don't know how to say his last name. He was an employee early on pre-IPO. He made a bunch of money in the IPO, so he left Facebook. He kind of retired temporarily, I guess, and then he came back as a contractor. And what he was seeing as a contractor really disturbed him because at this point, he has one or two girls um, 
or had one or two teenage girl who, girls who were te- who were teenagers at that time a few years ago when this guy Arturo was a contractor and he's working on uh, Facebook during the day and then he'd go home and see his girls at night and they'd say hey dad you know I've I've really been getting these these awful messages from men um, men you know harassing them sending them awful photos. I don't need to describe them to you. I think you know what kind. And the, the it, there was some cognitive dissonance because here Arturo is, is saying, well, gosh, you know, there's there's so many nice people inside Facebook who are trying to do the right thing. And, um, you know, they, they pay me well. And this is my own projection into his thinking. He, it, he wasn't quoted saying this. But my, my, my own guess is that he's sitting there thinking like, Everybody's nice to me at Facebook. They pay me well. I do interesting work. Everybody seems really pleasant and polite inside Facebook walls. And then I come home, and my daughter shows me yet another day of men sending photos of their, you know, to teenage girls. Disgusting. And uh, so this guy, Arturo, decided to say something about it. And it actually he started looking more into the data. And what he found, and read Jeff Horowitz's piece so you can get the details, but, but, but essentially what Horowitz is pointing out is that what Arturo found is that Facebook came up with this own internal rating system for its own performance on whether um, – sexually explicit material was being sent to teens or whether harmful to take a broader category, whether harmful interactions were occurring on Facebook. And as I understand it, the way Facebook did it was they said, look at every single possible piece of content that is sent from anyone to anyone else on any of our apps, sites, platforms, or brands anywhere in the world ever and now that'll be the denominator, okay? So it's like 15 quintillion, okay? I'm just making this up. And then now let's look at the incidents that we've heard of that, or that we have decided to acknowledge of young users actually receiving horrible content. Wow, we got, what is it, a couple thousand. So our, our ratio is like a couple of thousand to 15 quintillion. So that's like a, an incidence of 0.0000001%. It's so small, it's not even worth measuring. We basically have no problems at all on Facebook. Good job, us, and they're patting themselves on the back. That's basically, with, I'm taking some liberties with the details, but, it, but essentially, that's what Facebook leadership was doing. They came up with their own rating system that was designed in order to deflect the problems and even deflect their own awareness of the problems. They were intentionally hiding the truth from themselves. And Arturo said, hey, guys, you know, I know I'm just a contractor here, but you know me. I used to be an employee, and you trust me. And um, I think that that's maybe not the greatest rating system. What if we actually looked at a, a, a different rating system that looked at the incidence of reported cases. I mean, if we really focused on these, these young users, and let's see how many of them might actually, being, actually are being harassed every day. Because he says, my daughter or daughters are, are getting harassed all the time, and it's, it's, it can't just be them. And he looks into the data, and he uncovers this wealth, this wealth of data that's pointing to this 
awful problem that's like a thousand times bigger than anything that Facebook has ever acknowledged, even internally before. And so he puts this report together and he says, you know, <laughs> I, I'm sure if I get this report in front of Adam Asseri, the head of Instagram, and Mark Zuckerberg, the head of Facebook, I'm sure they are such good, upstanding guys. They are going to, they, they got it. I mean, once they understand how bad this is, of course, they're going to take action. And um, spoiler, it didn't happen that way. Because what happened is Zuckerberg's minions got to him first and said, hey, 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 hey there, Arturo, before you start releasing a report with all this scary looking data that may create a PR problem for us, uh, we're going to need you to send it through legal, all right? Great. And so he sends it through legal, and legal says, hey, 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 you can't be saying that we do this and we do that. You got to say it might be happening like this, that it could be harming people, and there might be data that could, you know, it was all, they turned it all into hypotheticals. And so the guy, Arturo's contract ended, and he was only able to give this watered-down report. And he left, and he thought, and here's, here's an example where a guy says, hey, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm not satisfied with, with my inability to do the right thing. He left, and he said, that's not sufficient. That's not enough for my values, for my ethics. And so he became a whistleblower. And, and I, I believe he began talking to Jeff Horowitz, who's wrapped his story into this book. And so what we're seeing is that Mark Zuckerberg, very consistent, very consistent. He is very concerned about PR, about his image. He wants to come across as this nice, reasonable guy with these interesting ideas. But the way he runs his company inside is that he is willing to harm his users, vulnerable users, girls, 12, as, as young as 12 years old. Let him get harmed, Zuck says, through his actions. Let him get harmed. We're here for growth. Let him get sent the pics. I don't care. Grow it. Grow this sucker. That's what Zuck is saying. A complete lack of ethics, an absolute lack of ethics, but pretty good at PR. I got to give him credit. That superficial look of, hey, I'm just, you know, like this normal guy. And that's why we have another round of whistleblowers coming out against Facebook, because this is an incredibly toxic sludge factory that has no accountability. And Zuckerberg is never going to take responsibility for his actions, ever. You think he's going to be any better than Sam Bankman-Fried or Adam Newman? <laughs> so then, then, just speaking of Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, another item in the news I came across was this, was this podcast. There's this popular tech booster, Lex Friedman, who, who runs this very popular podcast. A lot of these tech podcasts, as long as they're boosting tech and saying how awesome it is, they get a lot of listeners. Um, you know, I haven't cracked the code, uh, apparently, <laughs> criticizing tech uh, week after week. Some people don't like that. Hey, say, say something nice once in a while. I'm just trying to tell you the truth. But here, I'm going to play you a little bit of Lex Friedman because I'll give Lex Friedman credit. He was able to get Mark Zuckerberg to, to, to come on the show and talk about the metaverse. The metaverse, if you can believe, this thing is not dead. We all thought it was dead. What a stupid idea. It's not dead. So what they did is Zuckerberg and Friedman on this podcast, they, they got a 3D scan of their faces and then put it into this uh, virtual reality system so it looks like 
the faces are floating in space. Uh, there's like a half a torso in the face. And it, and it mirrors the, um, the eyes and the eyebrows and their facial expressions in real time. So as they're talking and they move their eyebrows and they move their eyes left and right, the VR rig sees all of that and, and uh, transmits that to the other. And so there's a uh, YouTube video, which I put on the, I put a version of that on the playlist. It's a non-surveilled link. You can click on and you will not be surveilled by YouTube and you can see what it looks like. Or if you just look at the playlist, the, the, uh, the screenshot at the top of the playlist shows these two guys, Lex Friedman on the left, Mark Zuckerberg on the right. And you can see they look pretty like, well, Mark Zuckerberg never looks lifelike, but he looks um, equally um, uncanny valley as he always does. Anyway, on the right, that's actually his, what they call a Kodak avatar, which is basically a 3D scan of their faces that moves around as they talk. And so uh, I want to play. I want to play an excerpt. Uh, it's a minute and a half, and I want to play an excerpt. First, Lex Friedman is talking to Mark Zuckerberg, like, "Oh, this is amazing." He's just going on and on. It's amazing. It's it's a new, uh, it's a brand new kind of experience in life. I, I'm getting emotional. I mean, he just goes on and on with with his fatuous praise uh, to, of, of this thing because Mark Zuckerberg is looking straight at him. And then he asks, what other amazing things you're going to do with this thing? And so I want to play you Friedman's question. And then I, I, I want you to hear how Mark Zuckerberg describes what he is planning to do with this VR system. Here it is from the uh, Lex Friedman podcast, September 28, 2023. It's tracking all the people around you with no latency, integrating physical reality and digital reality. Obviously, that connects exactly to this uh, Kodak avatar, which is in parallel, allows us to have ultra-realistic copies of ourselves in this mixed reality. It's uh, so like it's all converging towards like an incredible digital experience in the metaverse. But do you have other ideas of what this unlocks? Of like something like Kodak avatar unlocks in terms of applications, in terms of uh, things we're able to do. Well, there's what you can do with avatars overall in terms of superimposing digital objects on the physical world. Um, and then there's kind of psychologically, what does having photorealistic do? Um, you know, so I, I think we're moving towards a world where, you know, we're going to have something that looks like normal glasses where you can just see, you see the physical world, but you will see holograms. And in that world, I think that there are going to be you know, not too far off, you know, maybe, you know, by the end of this decade, we'll be living in a world where there are kind of as many holograms when you walk into a room as there are physical objects. And it, it really raises this interesting question about what are, um, about, you know, a lot of people have this phrase where they, they, they call the physical world, the real world. And, you know, I, I kind of think increasingly, and the physical world is super important, but I actually think the, the real world is the combination of the physical world and the digital worlds coming together. Okay. Did you hear what he said there? That was Mark Zuckerberg talking about the future that he is hoping to usher in with the use of his new VR rigs, where you st strap this giant thing, this face gel, onto your eyes, and, uh, and then you look around at the world through Mark Zuckerberg's filter that he has coded for you. He says later in the interview, he's hoping that the, the giant VR headsets are going to turn into glasses. Um, and I have no doubt he's working on it. They have an early version of it now with Ray-Ban, 
um, these surveillance classes that surveil everybody around you. Um, so whether it's a, a, a bulky VR rig or later on these glasses, the idea is that everyone should wear them because there's going to be what Zuckerberg calls holograms, which are these projections in your visual field that look like they're floating in space um, that Zuckerberg wants to put in there. And as he says, it, 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 this is the thing. <laughs> this is the thing that I just can't I, I can't get over. Zuckerberg says, this is, some people say the, the physical world is the real world. The, just let me stop you right there, Zuck. You're, you're setting up as a straw man the idea that the physical world is the real world because you want to contradict this. Because then he says, actually, the real world, what the real world should be is the physical world overlaid with all of my toxic sludge. And it's just amazing to me, the supreme arrogance of this guy, that it's not enough to say, I have these stupid surveillance glasses and I hope some people wear them and spy on everybody and get everyone addicted to my, my completely disappointing and unethical platforms. That's one thing. I mean, that's that's what most of the tech bros stop at. I, I want everyone to, to use my horrible platform and get addicted to it. Zuck is actually taking a step up or a step down, step in some direction. He's saying, I don't merely want people to use my platforms. I want you to adjust your sense of reality itself to accommodate my vision of me putting my sludge in your visual field for the rest of your life. That's your reality now. And yeah, some people say the physical world is reality. And don't get me wrong. The physical world is super important. Blech. Just makes me want to vomit. Well, the reality, reality. Yeah, some people call it the physical world. Yeah, that's super important. It's just so gross. So now let me, let me continue with that. Same excerpt, another another minute and a half, so we can hear Zuck, and we're gonna we're gonna start where he said that, and then how he continues, what the rest of his vision uh, looks like. Again, this is Mark Zuckerberg speaking on the Lex Friedman podcast. You know, I, I kind of think increasingly, you know, the physical world is super important, but I actually think the the real world is the combination of the physical world and the digital worlds coming together. But until this technology, they were sort of separate. Right. It's like you access the digital world through a screen. Right. And, you know, maybe it's a small screen that you carry around or it's a bigger screen when you sit down at your desk and you know, strap in for a long session. But um, but they're, they're kind of fundamentally divorced and disconnected. And I think part of what this technology is going to do is bring those together into a single coherent experience of what the modern real world is, which is you know, it's got to be physical because that we're physical beings. So the physical world is, is always going to be super important. But but increasingly, I think a lot of the things that we kind of think of um, can be digital holograms. I mean, any screen that you have can be a hologram, um, you know, any media, um, you know, any book, art, um, you know, it can basically be just as effective as a hologram, as a physical object, any game um, that you're playing, a board game or, um, or any kind of physical game, cards, um, you know, ping pong, things like that. They're, they're often a lot better as holograms because you could just kind of snap your fingers and instantiate them and have them... Um, show up, you know, it's like you have a ping pong table show up in your living room, but then you can snap your fingers and have it be gone. Um, so 
whether that's super powerful. Um, so I think that it's, it's actually an amazing thought experiment of like how many physical things we have today that could actually be better as interactive holograms. How many things we have today that would be better as interactive holograms, like playing ping pong? You know, like he said, it's so much more powerful to play ping pong with a VR rig uh, strapped to your face with uh, ads, of course, ad supported and uh, surveillance supported uh, ads in your visual field, anything that Zuckerberg wants to put in your visual field. And it'll be like, um, click here to watch this this horrible video for 15 seconds for this brand that you detest in order for us to give you another ping pong ball so you can play another point with your little brother. I mean, it's just so powerful. In Zuckerberg's metric, more powerful means he's going to have more growth. You understand that, right? More, fa more powerful doesn't mean it's better in any way for you. It means it's better for him, meaning it's more growth for him. That's the only metric that, that he understands. And, and, to, and just, again, the, the, the unbelievable level of arrogance it takes to say, oh, physical reality is super important, don't get me wrong, uh, but really where it's at is my toxic sludge clouding your visual field for the rest of your life so that I can grow my already gargantuan, cancerous empire even further. It's so disappointing. That, that internet technology came to this point. It was never supposed to be this, and it was never supposed to be him. And yet, and yet, like all the tech villains, he's going to keep doing what he's doing, unrepentant and unaccountable. I got time for one more. Let's go to Mark Andreessen, the uh, co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz, a well-known venture capitalist. Uh, has been around online um, since the beginning. And I was online not long after he was. Uh, so we're roughly the same age, two marks. He spells it with a C, I spell it with a K. Take that as you will. But Mark Andreessen is always coming out with these manifestos about uh, how what he's doing is awesome and anybody who disagrees with him is a loser. And the most recent one is called the Techno-Optimist Manifesto from October 16. Uh, that just go, it's like 4,000, 5,000 words. It goes on and on and on about how the technology is going to grow and grow and we're going to make technology spiral upwards and to, you know, to infinity and beyond, basically, if we can just keep his version of the economy moving because it works so well for everybody. Here's a quote from his manifesto. The techno-capital machine makes natural selection work for us in the realm of ideas. The best and most productive ideas win and are combined and generate even better ideas. Can I just stop you right there, Mark Andreessen? You're telling me that the system that you've built, and you have built a lot of this with your VC investments, has allowed the, quote, best and most productive ideas to win. Is, is that what you're saying? Because... I'm looking at WeWork. Was that the best idea or the most productive idea? The one where Adam Newman walked away with $2 billion and everyone else walked away getting laid off from a bankrupt company. Was that, help me, was that the best or the most productive one? How about Sam Bankman Freed? And, and, and all of the, the, the fraud and scams in the crypto industry, was that that you haven't invested quite a bit in? Uh, was that the best or the most productive that you allowed to win? 
I'm just, I just want to make sure I'm following along. The best and most productive ideas win and are combined and generate even better ideas. Those ideas materialize in the real world, now we wonder what the real world is, as technologically enabled goods and services that never would have emerged de novo. We believe in ensuring that the techno-capital upward spiral continues forever. That's a direct quote from the techno-optimist manifesto. And then this guy Ben Gro Grosser, 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 on October 17, came out with the techno-optimist manifesto redacted by Ben Grosser. And there's a link to it on the playlist at WFMU.org. I just want to um, read an excerpt of this. This is a redaction. <clears throat> and you know what a redaction looks like when you see, you know, from a FOIA request, documents from the FBI or whatever, and they have the black marks that, that take out most of the words, and there's a word that's still allowed to see the light of day. And that's what Ben Grosser did with Mark Andreessen's techno-optimist manifesto, leaving some key words still visible to the reader. And that's what I would like to read to you. I, I don't think I have time to read the whole redaction, but I can read to you much of it. This is by Ben Grosser. And these, everything I'm going to read to you, by the way, is a direct quote from Andreessen's manifesto, just without some of the words in the middle. Okay, here we go. Technology is the glory. B, techno-optimists grow or die. Growth is progress, but lack of growth is a kill-all. Everything good is downstream of growth. Not growing is stagnation. Growth, growth, growth is technology. Growth, growth, growth. More growth, more growth, growth, growth. More growth, more technology. We believe markets, profits, markets, wealth, market, 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 market. Market, no limit. Market, markets. We believe markets, markets, more. Rich. We believe markets are individualistic. We believe markets regard their own self-interest, their self-love, money. Love doesn't scale. So run on money. Stick with money. We believe the markets. We believe markets. We believe markets. Wealth. We believe profits. Markets. Markets exploit. Markets. Market. More. Millions or billions. Advantage. 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 Market. We believe a market infinite. We believe markets infinite. Infinite. Growth can continue forever. We believe markets are exploitative. Markets infinite. Markets are the ultimate infinite game. Markets growth. Markets never ends. Spirals continuously upward. Endless. Unlimited numbers. Upward spiral. Largest number. Accelerating. We believe in accelerationism to ensure the fulfillment of the law of accelerating, 
to ensure the techno capital upward spiral continues forever. And that again from Ben Grosser was the redacted techno optimist manifesto by Mark Andreessen. If you'd like to read more, go to the playlist at WFMU.org and you can read the entire redaction, or if you dare, and if you can stomach it, you can read the thousands of words from thoughtfluencer Mark Andreessen himself telling us how growth at any cost will give us the toxic sludge that we so accurately have seen demonstrated by the actions recently of Mark Zuckerberg, Sam Bankman-Fried, and Adam Newman. And that, friends, is the techno villain update for Tectonic on November 6, 2023. It all fits together. They told us what they were going to do, and then they did it. And it's up to us if we want to change things. You have been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County, and 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Hey, listen, uh, I got a little homework for you for next week. Just uh, four things, four easy things I want you to do. I want you to avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. And right now, I want you to stay tuned for Dave Mandel and another episode of It's Complicated. It's his prog rock show. And uh, listen, I have a great outro for you this evening. This comes yet again from brother Daniel Blumen, who's going to be on after Bad Animals. Uh, he's coming on at 9 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. to 12 midnight. And it's a song, it's an instrumental, but it's a song called Reboot Me by Triola. And uh, so thanks to brother Blumen for bringing that to my attention. We're going to hear Reboot Me now, and I hope that uh, <laughs> I hope that we don't have to be rebooted soon enough, all wearing Zuckerberg's surveillance toxic sludge glasses, putting his awful, advertised, uh, ill-advised holograms in our visual field for the rest of our lives. That's about all the time I have for us this evening. Let's go ahead and listen to Reboot Me. And uh, thanks for being with me this evening, and I'll see you next week.
love that. Welcome, greetings, welcome to another exciting episode of It's Complicated, an hour of Prague and Prague-adjacent music. I'm your host, Dave Mandel. I'm here following the wonderful Mark Hurst every Monday at 7 p.m. right here at WFMU. And lots of great music for you tonight. <laughs> it's like absolutely indecipherable page of notes here. Let's see if I can actually figure out, remember what it is I was going to play this evening. But I know what I'm going to start with, which is a track from a group called uh, Parachute Day. We're going to hear a, uh, a track from an EP that they released in 2016. They are a duo from Illinois. Uh, drums, uh, drummer and a guitar slash bass player, if I remember correctly. Parachute Day. Uh, this is going to be a track called Frisbee from, as I said, an EP called, called Thank You Notes. And this is what it sounds like. Wait a minute there.
And music just there from the group Parachute Day. Again, there's a track called Frisbee, instrumental piece, obviously, from a self-titled EP called Thank You Notes, 2016, a band from Illinois, Parachute Day. I don't know much about them, but that album, I can tell you for sure, is available on Bandcamp, where much great music is found. I'm going to play for you now a track from a group called 48 Chairs. 48 Chairs was a real oddball group uh, around the uh, punk, post-punk time uh, in the UK, and it was a group that, oddly enough, I would call this, I would call it sort of prog punk, maybe, and oddly enough, this group included Lal Coxhill, believe it or not, Lal Coxhill, the legendary uh, English sax experimental sax player experimental what does that mean a sax player <laughs> jazz jazz avant-garde sax player lol coxhill played with this group 48 chairs they put out just a couple records and the one i'm gonna play the track i'm gonna play was released as a single believe it or not which i have a copy of somewhere or other <laughs> and also appeared on an album called 70 percent paranoid and this is going to be a track called relentless from the group 48 Chairs, 1982, if that matters to you. <laughs> 